0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christian Internet Radio. Today is November 20th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This is the fifth segment of our presentation of Paul's Epistle to the Ephesians. This is subtitled, Speaking the Truth with Love, and we will get right into it. As we have already discussed at length throughout most of the first half of this epistle to the Ephesians, Paul of Tarsus had explained to them why they should be Christians. Because they were indeed of the descendants of Abraham through Jacob Israel, the very people who in the period of the Old Testament had been alienated from God and who were now being reconciled in Christ. Here in this fourth chapter Paul has begun to explain how they should conduct themselves on account of their reconciliation towards the edification of the body of Christ which is as Paul had described it the restoration of the saints the restoration of people who were already saints Doing this in the first part of his fourth uh, of the, I'm sorry in the first part of this fourth chapter of Ephesians, because of course Paul didn't originally make chapter separations. Paul had explained that these Christians were now reconciled to God, and that they should find a common bond of unity in their common calling in Christ and in that bond of unity they should therefore seek to walk worthily in that calling with the purpose in mind that as Paul had said we would all attain to the unity of the faith Paul then professed the objective of that unity of the faith by concluding that we would be infants no longer being tossed as waves and carried about in every wind of teaching by the trickery of men, in villainy for the sake of the systematizing of deception. Paul had also informed his readers at the end of chapter 2 of this epistle that the body of Christ was founded upon the apostles and the prophets. Reading the words of the apostles... Together with the prophets, the Word of God presents a clear narrative focused on a particular family, beginning with the promises to Abraham that his seed would become many nations, and that they would inherit the earth. Examining that narrative, if we observe the words of the apostles and prophets, then we must accept the fact that the people who are the called in Christ were those whom the Old Testament informs us would be called and that the saints are those whom the Old Testament informs us are the saints. So Paul refers to the family of the faith as the household of the mystery because up until Paul's time It was indeed a mystery as to how those promises to Abraham were kept. And that was the mystery which Paul was commissioned to reveal. Therefore, Paul had promised concern, had professed concerning this same faith in Romans chapter 4 that the promise was indeed certain to all of the seed, meaning all of the people who descended from Abraham through Jacob Israel, as Paul explains in another way in Galatians chapter 3. Paul had told the Galatians who were the descendants of the, who were among the descendants of the Israelites that had been taken into captivity by the Assyrians eight centuries before that epistle was written that God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. And all Israelites were at one time under the law of Yahweh their God. But because of their sins, they were subject to judgment under that law after they had been alienated from God. However, in the divine mercy which Yahweh had promised to the children of Israel, Paul also told them, Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Once the true faith of the gospel is accepted, one is no longer an infant. Once the true faith of the gospel is accepted, one no longer needs a schoolmaster, but should gladly endeavor to keep the commandments of God, as Christ himself had said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Once the true faith of the gospel is accepted, it should also be realized that the common bond of unity in the faith begins with the fact that the faith is only for those of the seed of Abraham through Jacob Israel, which is consistent with the words of the apostles and the prophets upon which the body of Christ is built. Anything contrary to the word of God in the promises to Abraham and the words of the prophets does not belong to the gospel, but rather it belongs to the system of deception created by the enemies of God, which is spoken of here by Paul. Earlier in this chapter, Paul had described four Christian offices given to men. for the purpose of building the body of Christ on the foundation of the apostles and prophets those four offices are the apostles themselves prophets or interpreters of prophecy, evangelists, and shepherds or teachers. The purpose of these offices, as Paul explained it, is the restoration of the saints so that the body of Christ may not fall victim to the systematized deception of the enemies of Christ. That entire theme of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians up to this point is therefore summarized in this, that the saints were once the people of God and were alienated because of their sin, but now the saints are reconciled to God in Christ in the forgiveness of their sin, and they are being called to be the people of God once again. In the knowledge of this, they should have a common bond of unity and therefore care for one another as they are all part of the same body, being of the same race caring for one another in Christ they work towards their restoration as a united people. That is the entire theme of the prophets in the gospel and that is the primary purpose of the four offices which Paul described expecting his readers to have a knowledge of the things which he has taught up to this point and we keep repeating them because each time we progress through further Through Paul's epistle, we must be reminded of the context of the entire epistle. Expecting his readers to have this knowledge, Paul informs his readers that they should not any longer be tossed as waves and carried about in every wind of teaching by the trickery of men. And he goes on to say, but speaking the truth with love... We may increase all things, for he who is the head, the Christ, from whom all the body, it's the body before it's joined together, from whom all the body is being joined together and being reconciled through every stroke of assistance according to the operation of each single part in proportion the growth of the body creates itself into a building in love. Speaking the truth with love, when that truth resonates with the people of God as a natural result the body is reconciled and the disparate members come to work together in unity for the benefit of the entire body. But what does it mean (laughs) To speak the truth with love. And if the apostles and all of the Christians after them. Were merely preaching love itself. As today's denominational churches teach. Then why were they persecuted and executed by the Jews and the Romans. The apostles were not preaching love the apostles were speaking the truth with love and there is a world of difference reading the books of the chronicles of ancient Israel and the books of the prophets it is clear that the children of Israel were alienated as Paul describes here alienated from Yahweh their God because they had adopted the sexual licentiousness, fornication, and other unclean practices of the pagan nations. This licentiousness ultimately led to the most fatal of sins, which is race-mixing, as chapter 5 of Hosea records the God of Israel as saying, I know Ephraim, And Israel is not hid from me, for now, O Ephraim, thou committest whoredom, and Israel is defiled. They will not frame their doings to turn unto their God, for the spirit of whoredoms is in the midst of them, and they have not known Yahweh and the pride of Israel does testify to his face therefore shall Israel and Ephraim fall in their iniquity Judah also shall fall with them they shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek Yahweh but they shall not find him he has withdrawn himself from them speaking of the Assyrian deportations of Israel and most of Judah They have dealt treacherously against Yahweh, for they have begotten strange children. Now, a month shall devour them with their portions, with their inheritance. So for this, Israel would be taken off into captivity and alienated from God but throughout the books of the prophets we also see a promise of reconciliation in a Messiah which is the very purpose of the message of the gospel that such a Messiah was necessary in order to effect that reconciliation was for reasons related to the laws of God as a demonstration that God fulfills his own law where men are often bound to fail. None of this is taught by denominational churches today and little of it has ever been properly taught. The entire purpose of Paul's ministry was to bring the gospel of reconciliation to those dispersed nations of the Old Testament Israelites those people who went with their flocks and their herds to seek Yahweh and did not find him because he had withdrawn he had withdrawn himself from them because they dealt treacherously against Yahweh and begot strange children. Peter, the Apostle Peter also came to an understanding of this and in the opening verses of his first epistle he writes concerning the call to obedience being made for those who were, as he says, elect According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, whom he goes on to describe in chapter 2 as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. The subsequent verses of that same chapter, where Peter cites the words of Hosea, in chapter 1, concerning the alienation and reconciliation of the children of Israel, ensure the validity of our understanding. Likewise, it is epistle to the Romans. In the opening verses, Paul announced the purpose of the gospel of Christ. And he said, by whom we have received grace and apostleship, for O." Obe- Obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are you also the called of Jesus Christ. In that chapter, Paul then goes on to describe the disobedience for which the children of God were given up to licentiousness, to unnatural sexual relations, to fornication and other sins. Then, in Romans chapter 4, Paul explained that those nations which are the recipients of this faith are indeed the nations of the Old Testament, Israelites, which had indeed descended from Abraham through Jacob. So speaking the truth with love we have a duty to seek the restoration of the saints by urging them to obedience in Christ. As Paul had explained in Romans chapter 13 love is fulfilling of the law. Saying that Paul did not mean that somehow man's perception of love may substitute for the law of God that's not what he said at all rather Christ said if you love me keep my commandments and therefore when we keep the laws of Yahweh our God by that do we demonstrate our love speaking the truth with love we preach the gospel message of obedience to God's law. And we speak it to those Old Testament Israelites of the white nations of Europe, because it is they alone who were alienated from God, and it is they alone who may be reconciled to God. For the balance of Ephesians chapter 4 and well into chapter 5, Paul explains that speaking the truth in love must encompass an exhortation for one's fellow man to depart from the idolatry, fornication, and licentiousness for which the children of Israel were punished in the first place, as we've seen in Hosea. And in verse 17, Therefore, I say this, and I call you to witness with authority, not in the Lord. No longer are you to walk as the nations who walk in the vanity of their minds, being darkened in understanding, being alienated from the life of Yahweh because of the ignorance that is within them. The law was only given to the children of Israel because of the hardness of their hearts. In other places in the epistles of Paul, and especially here in this epistle to the Ephesians, the word kurios appears where Paul did not use it as a noun referring to the Lord, as it is almost always translated in the King James Version. While the word kurios is often a noun, it is also an adjective, meaning having power or authority over. Therefore, the phrase en curio," which is not a substantive, is translated as with authority here. Other instances of such a use of the word "curios" are found later in this epistle, epistle in chapter 6, namely. Of course, Paul's primary authority, he can say this and call them to witness with authority, his primary authority was the prophets of the Old Testament, whom he so often quoted. The majority text has verse 17 to read in part, no longer are you to walk as the remaining nations. And for that, the King James Version translates the phrase, other Gentiles. By referring to the nations here, who were walking in the vanity of their minds, it is evident that Paul intended both the other Genesis 10 nations as well as the other nations of the dispersed Israelites, which have not yet heard and accepted the gospel of Christ. This is evident in part in Acts chapter 14. And this in part is also a pretty sound proof of Christian identity interpretations of scripture. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas had addressed certain of the Lycaonians. While there were Greeks and Romans in Lycaonia, in the Hellenistic period and in Roman times, since these people were said to be speaking in the Lycaonian rather than Greek, rather than in Greek, that indicates that they were Lycaonians. And the Lycaonians were the original Phrygian stock of Lycaonia. And by ancient accounts, the Phrygians were descended from the Thracians. The Thracians were ostensibly Geppethites. The word Tyras is thyres or thyres in Hebrew Genesis chapter 10 verse 2 and therefore they were not descendants of the ancient Israelites these Lycaonians. So with this in mind when the Lycaonians imagined the apostles themselves Paul and Barnabas to be gods Paul had said men what are these things which you do? They tried to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. We also are men, being of like nature with you, announcing the good message to you from these vanities, meaning from their paganism, from these vanities to turn to Yahweh who lives, who has made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all the things which are in them who, in generations having passed, allowed all of the nations to go in their own ways. Paul had spoken in much the same manner to the Athenians. And the Athenians were not descended from the ancient Israelites, but they were descended from the Jepethite tribe of Javan, the Ionians. Genesis chapter 10 verse 2. As it is recorded in chapter 17, Paul had spoken in much the same manner to them where Luke wrote. Then Paul, standing in the middle of the hill of air, said, Men, Athenians, I observe that in all respects you are most superstitious, for passing through and considering your objects of worship, I found even an altar upon which was inscribed to the unknown God. So that which is unknown, you reverence, and this I declare to you, Yahweh, who made the order, or the world, and all the things in it, he being prince of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hand, neither is he attended by the hands of men, being in need of anything, himself giving to all life and breath and all things, and he made from one, every nation of men to dwell upon all the face of the earth, appointing the times ordained and the boundaries of their settlements, to seek Yahweh. If surely, then they would seek after him, then they would find him, and indeed, he being not far from each one of us. So Paul's message to the non-Israelite nation was from the perspective of those first few chapters of Genesis from before the call of Abraham. The reference to the boundaries of nations is a reference to the events where the earth was divided in Genesis chapter 11, which is also mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 8. Paul did not speak to the Athenians or to the Lycaonians from a perspective of reconciliation and redemption, and the forgiveness of sin, which are in Christ, and which are things promised to the children of Israel, things which are exclusive to the children of Israel, as Paul attests in all of his epistles. The Old Testament reveals that all of the other Adamic Genesis 10 nations were indeed allowed by Yahweh to go in their own ways as Paul had said in Acts chapter 14 and all of them went off into idolatry as we may even read of the fathers of Abraham in Joshua chapter 24 where it says thus saith Yahweh God of Israel Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood. In old time, that refers to the Euphrates River, the other side of the Euphrates River, if you see where Abraham came from. Even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods it is not often observed that according to the more accurate Septuagint chronology, there are over 12 centuries between the events of chapters 9 and 12 of the book of Genesis. And by the time of Abraham, they were all pagan nations. There in Joshua chapter 24, it is also explained that Abraham alone was justified by Yahweh out of all of these other Adamic peoples where it says in verse 3 and I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood from beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac therefore The children of Israel are admonished in that same chapter of Joshua to put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye Yahweh. When they chose pagan idolatry instead, they were ultimately alienated from Yahweh their God, which is the story of the Old Testament. So seven centuries after their alienation was completed with the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in part, Behold, Israel down through the flesh are not those who are eating the sacrifices, partners of the altar. Rather, that whatever the nations sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to Yahweh. Now I do not wish for you to be partners with demons. So we see that Paul is speaking of the nations of Europe, who had descended from the Old Testament Israelites, as he called them, Israel down through the flesh, or, if you prefer, Israel according to the flesh, who were alienated from God because they had turned to idolatry. And he is admonishing them to return to Yahweh their God in Christ. In this same manner, The Apostle Peter told the scattered Israelites, whom he addressed in the first chapter of his first epistle, that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. Peter was speaking not to the circumcision, to the uncircumcision. Peter's two epistles are two the uncircumcision, the people to whom Paul preached, which is evident in the context of his two epistles. These are the nations of whom Paul speaks here, who are the nations who walk in the vanity of their minds. Peter called it the conversation or behavior or conduct received by tradition from your fathers, the nations who walk in the vanity of their minds, being darkened in understanding, being alienated from the life of Yahweh because of the ignorance that is within them, as punishment, for continuing the idolatry of their fathers. Earlier, in that same epistle, Peter beckoned the same scattered Israelites in the same way, where he admonished them to be as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. the same thing that Paul is saying here in verses 18 and 19. So we see that Paul is speaking of the nations of Europe who were descended from the Old Testament Israelites, as he called them, Israel according to the flesh who were alienated from God because they had turned to idolatry and he is admonishing them to return to Yahweh their God in Christ Peter is doing that same thing he is doing no differently Peter beckoned the same scattered Israelites In the same way, talking about their former lusts, which they conducted in their ignorance. And he says, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And that exhortation only concerns the children of Israel, the Old Testament Israelites. That is the very essence of the Gospel of Reconciliation. The proof in Peter that he's talking to scattered Israelites is very clear where he refers to Hosea chapter 1, tells them that at one time they were not a people, but are now the people of God. And that can only refer to those same Old Testament Israelites. Then, speaking in relation to those idolatrous nations which remained alienated from God, because Paul's Gospel of Reconciliation is basically at its starting point as he writes these epistles. Paul says, those who feel no sorrow, surrendering themselves to licentiousness, to the practice of all uncleanness with arrogance. Now the King James Version translates this word arrogance as greediness, which is another literal translation of the same word, but it's arrogance as well. And it's arrogance in this context more appropriately. This too is a judgment from God, that we are left to the fleshly desires and corruptions of men once we abandon God. Paul describes this process in Romans chapter 1, and he says that because that, when they knew God, meaning that the Romans also were formerly Israelites, they were descendants of Old Testament Israelites, because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up To uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts. When we abandon God, God abandons us to our fleshly lusts. To dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Who change the truth of God into a lie. And worshipped and served the creature more than the creator. Who is blessed forever. For this cause, God gave them up under vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. We call them lesbians today. And likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one towards another. Men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet, meaning that their homosexuality was a punishment for their having abandoned God. In his first epistle, the Apostle Peter also discussed the sin of the scattered children of Israel. In the same manner which Paul does here, in 1 Peter chapter 4, where he says, and this too establishes, that he was talking to the children of Israel who were in the Assyrian captivity, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the nations when we walked in lascivious lust lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot-speaking evil of you. And this is the arrogance of sinners which Paul mentions here, where we see that sinful men are offended when they encounter others who do not approve of their sin. We have frequent examples of this very phenomenon in our society today. There are frequent horror stories about people being sued, losing their businesses because they refuse to cater to sexual deviance and other miscreants. Just two weeks ago, a pair of presumably Christian daycare workers were fired from their jobs for refusing to call a little girl a boy. The story was reported on Breitbart.com and on a website of the local Houston, Texas CBS television affiliate. The two workers were employed by the Children's Lighthouse Learning Center in Katie, Texas, a company which is said to run 37 child daycare centers in seven states. According to Breitbart, and this is sickening, but I'll read it, the two male parents, as if there could be such a thing, the two male parents of a six-year-old little girl, if I don't laugh, I'll cry told employees at the school to refer to their daughter as a boy and to call her by a new masculine name. The little girl's hair had also been cut like a boy's. The CBS News website interviewed a lawyer hired by the woman, reporting that this case involves a... little six-year-old girl who has been attending a private school in Katy, Texas. For the last four months, as a little girl, she has parents, and this is disgusting language, she has parents who are a same-sex couple, two men who decided that she was transgender lawyer Andy Taylor said, according to KPRC, the television station. On Friday, that little girl left school. I'm not going to use names, but she was known to everybody as Sally. And on Monday, this little girl returns to school calling herself Johnny. The lawyer himself was even quoted as saying that the little girl was the victim of child abuse when the teachers refused to go along with the scheme citing their own Christian principles quasi-Christian principles at least they were fired of course the first problem is that this little girl had what the reports say are two male parents and then that such sexual deviants are permitted to legally adopt And corrupt young children. Until two males could have a baby together, no Christian should ever consider two males to be parents of any child. Since the word parent is actually derived from a Latin verb which means to give birth. I'd like to see that only recently the actual definition of the word parent has been rewritten in our dictionaries to accommodate sexual deviants and perverts who will never give birth but Christians who are not accepting these blatant sins of these deviants are now being persecuted more and more frequently Just as Peter had warned, they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. The Christianian New Testament translates that last sentence. While they are astonished, they're astonished because you don't accept them. While they are astonished, they blaspheme. That you're not running together with them in the same excess profligacy. And that's what it is. As Paul says here in verse 19, they certainly do engage in the practice of all uncleanness with arrogance. Then, in repudiation of such licentiousness and uncleanness, Paul says, But you, not in this manner, do you learn from Christ. If you really have heard him and have been taught by him, just as truth is in that of Yahshua, you are to put away that which concerns the former mode of life, the old man which is perishing in accordance with the desires of the seed. And you are to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new man, which in accordance with Yahweh has been established in justice and piety of truth. And that Greek word for piety, hosiotes, may have been rendered as holiness, as the King James Version has it here. As the children of Israel were being alienated from Yahweh their God and taken into captivity by the Assyrians, in Isaiah chapter 10, we see a prophecy of the ultimate destruction of Assyria itself at the hands of those same Israelites, which was fulfilled by the Scythians about 140 years after the prophet, where it also says this in part in verse 20. And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel, and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob, those who survive the Assyrian captivity, shall no more again (coughs) stay upon him that smote them. (coughs) Excuse me but shall stay upon Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. Not to Jerusalem. They shall return unto the mighty God. That entire chapter of Isaiah forebodes the destructions of the kingdoms of the idols which is the term it uses to refer to Israel and Judah, as well as Assyria and the other surrounding nations of the Old World. All of those nations were indeed destroyed, and the remnant of Israel, and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob, return to Yahweh where they had resettled in Europe and departed from their paganism and turned to the gospel of Christ. Speaking the truth in love, true messengers of God must continually inform those same children of Israel that they must cleave to their God and His laws unless they suffer his judgments or else they suffer his judgments as they had suffered them so long ago in this modern age having departed from Christ they are about to suffer those same judgments once again only the most arrogant sinner could consider the present world circumstances where little boys can be little girls and little girls are being forced to be little boys and imagine that he could escape judgment where the white nations are once again caught up in licentiousness and all christendom is once again being overrun with aliens with his gospel of reconciliation with it being accepted that since the Ephesians are reconciled to Christ, that they have also departed from sin, Paul admonishes them even further, and he says, on which account, putting away falsehood, each must speak truth with he who is near to him, because we are members of one another. Each must speak truth with his neighbor, as it would say in a King James. Here Paul makes a citation from Zechariah 8.16. By quoting such passages, Paul is directly relating the return to obedience in Christ by his readers to a repentance from the sinful ways of their fathers, the people the prophets had spoken to. That portion of Zechariah is also talking about the same punishment of the ancient Israelites and the prospect of reconciliation for the remnant of Judah that returned to Jerusalem, which was the very time of Zechariah's prophesying. Jerusalem was the scope of Zechariah's prophecy in the short term. A fuller citation of the passage from verse 13. And it shall come to pass, that as you were a curse among the heathen, or the nations where they were originally taken captive, O house of Judah, and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus saith Yahweh of hosts, as I thought to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, saith Yahweh of hosts and I repented not meaning that they were indeed punished so again I have thought in these days to do well unto Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, fear ye not now the remnant of Judah in Jerusalem was considered the house of Judah while most of the actual tribe of Judah went into Assyrian captivity with Israel these are the things that you shall do speak ye every man the truth to his neighbor execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates so what we have here is Paul quoting an admonition of Zechariah which Zechariah made to the people of Jerusalem and the second temple as they were being restored back in the late sixth or early fifth century BC Paul is making the same admonition to these Ephesians scattered Israelites as they are being restored to Yahweh in Christ. The judgment of truth is found by returning to and keeping the laws of God. We speak truth to our neighbor when we judge by those very laws. And we do so because we are an interdependent racial community. For each of us to be healthy, the entire community must be healthy, which means that we must all seek to keep those same laws. As Paul described here in different language in verses 15 and 16, once men return to God, the community is healed as a natural result of their keeping God's law. The judgment of man is temporary and irrelevant compared to the judgment of God, and the judgment of God is according to the word and the laws of God, rather than the feelings of man. Thus, Paul concludes, Be angry and do not commit wrongdoing. The Son must not set upon your provocation, and do not give occasion to the false accuser or to the devil." the Greek word papas is literally a place as it is here in the King James Version but in our translation it is metaphorically rendered as an occasion while opportunity would also be acceptable the word "diabolus" is usually devil in the King James and other versions but here it is false accuser which is a more literal meaning of the Greek term, where Paul says (coughs) be angry and do not commit wrongdoing a phrase which may have been rendered be angry and sin not he quotes verbatim from the fourth verse of Psalm 4 as it appears in the Greek of the Septuagint the first four verses of the psalm, as they are translated by Brenton, read thus. <coughs> when I called upon him, the God of my righteousness heard me. Thou hast made room for me in tribulation. Pity me, and hearken to my prayer. <laughs> o ye sons of men, how long will you be slow of heart? Wherefore do you love vanity and seek falsehood? but know ye that the Lord has done wondrous things for his Holy One the Lord will hear me when I cry to him be ye angry and sin not, feel compunction upon your beds for what you say in your hearts which is basically Paraphrase by Paul, as the sun must not set upon your provocation, feel compunction upon your beds for what you say in your hearts. Men may be angry at the judgment which they receive, but regardless of the feelings of men, the judgments of God shall proceed. Therefore, men cannot have reconciliation with God until they put away falsehoods and seek His truths, as the same Psalm asks, Why do you love vanity and seek falsehood? The term holy one, as it is translated by Brenton in verse 3 of the Psalm, is from the same word, hosios, which we translated as piety here in verse 24 it may have been rendered pious one by Branton. We are informed that Yahweh hears the prayers of deliverance made by those who are pious. When we hear the truth of God concerning sin and judgment and deliverance, we must accept it without getting angry, because we as men cannot resist the judgment of God and we'll be a lot better off as a race once we realize that. There are few passages in Scripture which better elucidate the situation which we find ourselves in today. Most true Christians may indeed be angry at what is going on in the world around us, but there is no action that we can take to change it, because most of our brethren love falsehood and they are deserving of that judgment. (coughs) On the other hand, as Paul warns in verse 27 here, we do not want to give the enemies of God, who are now in control of all of our governments, the princes of this world, any good reason to persecute us further so we cannot give occasion to the devil before David became king that was also his same attitude and Paul goes on to say in verse 28 he who is stealing must steal no longer but rather he must labor accomplishing with his own hands that which is good in order that he would have to share with him having need. When we are in want, we cannot justify stealing. Rather, we must find a way to work to acquire that which we need. And when we do so, we in turn have an obligation to share with others of our brethren who may be needy therefore once we have neither can we be selfish and withhold just because we ourselves may not have received anything freely the sin of others is not an excuse to sin ourselves Paul uses stealing as an example here but he will describe many other sins which Christians must repudiate as well And in verse 29, he says, You must not let any corrupt word go out of your mouth, but if anything good is of use for building, that would give delight to those listening. D, the Codex Beze has for building of faith. The word logos may alternately have been rendered as a saying or a thought rather than a word. Corrupt saying, corrupt thought, corrupt thought. You may you may not let. You must not let any corrupt thought go out of your mouth. The King James version has communication. Any corrupt communication, which is acceptable in this context, that is fine. There is more to this passage than is generally perceived by denominational Christians. This passage is not an excuse to condemn something, somebody for saying a bad word. Corrupt words, the corrupt words to which Paul refers are not simply words which we do not like. Which may be by some considered to be bad words or words which are imagined to be dirty or unseemly. A word is a tool used to express an idea and the word itself cannot be good or bad. Rather it is the constructed thoughts which the words are employed to represent which may be good or bad. But a particular word may be acceptable in one context and if the same word is used in another context the thought it represents is unacceptable and if you use a not so bad synonym to express an unacceptable thought you're no better Here Paul is not speaking of merely bad words. But rather, he is speaking of lying and falsehood, which is the context of these past several verses. Therefore, it is these things which are corrupt communications. In Ephesians chapter 5, where these same admonishments continue, we shall see that Paul makes mention of abusiveness and foolish speaking, or ribaldry. So Paul's either repeating himself, or he means something different here. Of course, abusiveness could also be considered corrupt communication, because Christians should love their brethren. What constitutes foolish speaking can be interpreted quite broadly, depending on the context. But it still describes more than the mere use of certain descriptive words. Now, ribaldry, or, as the King James Version translates the word, eutrapolia, coarse jesting, eutrapelia. I'm sorry, eutrapelia. Ribaldry may include things such as making light of fornication or other forms of lasciviousness, things which today we might call dirty jokes. Those things are also forms of corrupt communications, but Paul is urging us to refrain from them separately. It is epistle to the Romans. In chapter 16, Paul warned, from verse 17, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. So we see that corrupt communications can be devised from words which are deceptively beautiful good words and fair speeches made for evil purposes and therefore by corrupt words or corrupt communications Paul is not merely referring to what people today may consider bad or naughty words otherwise he's just repeating himself when he talks about coarse jesting no here he's talking about lying and falsehood here he's talking about good words and fair speeches made for evil purposes in fact There is no indication whatsoever, anywhere in scripture, that any single word in Greek or Hebrew was considered bad or naughty by itself, regardless of what substance or act the word described. More importantly, it is how a word is used that makes it bad, whether or not the word itself is fair or foul in the mind of the hearer. You may not like the use of certain synonyms for dung or for the act of sexual intercourse or which describe female dogs or people of mixed race or other such things, but using those seemingly distasteful terms is not a sin by itself. It is the purpose behind the use of such terms which may or may not be sinful it is not a sin to speak the truth using distasteful words but it is certainly a great sin to speak lies using good words and fair speeches Paul continues by admonishing also do not vex the Holy Spirit of Yahweh in which you have been approved for the day of redemption. And the first thing to notice here is that all Israel shall be saved as it is written. Or Paul could not tell these Israelite Christians that they have been sealed or assured or approved. That word approved is sealed in the, New- in, in the King James Version a translation which is even more literal than where we have approved. Sealed could also be assured. Paul could not tell these Israelite Christians that they had been sealed for the day of redemption since Paul had no given indication of knowing whether any of them would sin in the future unless Paul was confident that all Israel would indeed be saved. And he certainly was, because he said it, repeating the scriptures from Isaiah. Concerning the vexing of the Holy Spirit, even if there is actually no violation of the law, if we love our brethren, we should avoid tormenting them with whatever things they may find distasteful. So, for example, while it is not a sin by itself to use what our brethren may consider to be a naughty word, and therefore our brethren should not condemn us for such things, there are times when it would be better not to use such words because we don't want to vex our brethren, and that is Christian civility so it works both ways by vexing our brethren we vex the Holy Spirit of our God Paul had said in Romans chapter 14 in verse 21 it is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Here Paul shows that redemption is something which Christians still await. These Ephesians were sealed or approved for the day of redemption, but they're not yet redeemed. Oh no! It is not something which they have already experienced. The receiving of the Spirit of God dispensed to Christians in the first century was only a deposit and an an assurance of an inheritance which is yet to be obtained. Paul said this in chapter 1 of this epistle where he called the Holy Spirit of the promise a deposit of our inheritance in regard to redemption of the possession here Paul verifies that redemption hasn't yet happened of course all of the promises of redemption found in the Old Testament are made only to the Old Testament Israelites so only those same Old Testament Israelites have that expectation in Christ today as we read in Hosea chapter 13 concerning the Old Testament Israelites. O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. I will be thy king. Where is any other that may save thee in all thy cities? And thy judges of whom thou said, Give me a king and princes. I gave thee a king in my anger, And took him away in my wrath The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up His sin is hid The sorrows of a travailing woman Shall come upon him He is an unwise son For he should not stay long In the place of the breaking forth of children Meaning he wouldn't be in Palestine very long I will ransom them from the power of the grave, I will redeem them from death, O death, I will be thy plagues, O grave, I will be thy destruction, repentance shall be hid from mine eyes, In this common promise, which only the children of the Old Testament Israelites can partake, the people of our white Adamic race should find grounds for true unity in Christ. And Paul says in verse 31, all bitterness and indignation and wrath and crying and blasphemy must be removed from you along with all malice. Malice is evil it's more than just a bad word. Bitterness is metaphorically rebellion which is bitterness towards God. Various forms of the same Greek word, picria appear frequently in the Septuagint in that same context. It was a translation from Mara. Mara, while picria to the Greeks didn't necessarily mean rebellion. It meant bitterness, literally. The Hebrew word mara, if you look in your Strong's Concordance, means both bitterness and, metaphorically, rebellion. Or the verb to be a rebel. So, Paul used that Greek word pikria, after the manner of the Hebrews, metaphorically to mean rebellion. And that's clear in Paul's epistle to the Hebrews. In Hebrews 12.15, Paul wrote in reference to such rebellion. And he said, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness, the word picria, springing up, trouble you, and thereby many be defiled lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright and Paul used the term picria in the same manner that the Septuagint translators used it metaphorically for rebellion so bitterness is rebellion to the law of God which leads to the defilement of men. Just as Esau was rebellious and became a fornicator, forfeiting his birthright, that root of bitterness sprung up in Esau, that root of rebellion. Likewise, indignation, wrath, crying, blasphemy, and malice have no place in the assemblies of Christ, as they are detrimental to the body of Christ in the truth of Christ men must seek peace with God and peace with their fellow Christians shall naturally follow. Once men realize that God is sovereign and that he keeps what he has promised and inner peace develops in their hearts This in part is the whole armor of God that Paul discusses in chapter 6 of this epistle which men must adorn in order to withstand in the evil day and to stand against the wiles of the devil as it reads in the King James Version. And Paul says in verse 32 Now you must be kind to one another, good-hearted, forgiving with yourselves just as Yahweh also in Christ has forgiven you and the ancient manuscripts are divided in the reading between us and you Christ has forgiven us we should hope for the best in our Christian brethren and treat them as if we would want to be treated as Christ said as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 22 Jesus said unto him Thou shalt love Yahweh thy God With all thy heart And with all thy soul And with all thy mind This is the first and great commandment And the second is like unto it Thou shalt love thy neighbor As thyself On these two commandments Hang all the law And the prophets And of course one's neighbors Are those of one's same flock As the Hebrew word and its Old Testament usage would insist. Loving your neighbor, you speak truth to your neighbor, as Paul quoted from Zechariah 8.16. Speaking lies to your neighbor, maybe to kiss his ass because he's caught up in some sin, or some indignity and you don't want to hurt his feelings that's not loving your neighbor that's actually hating your neighbor treating our brethren as we would want to be treated we are forgiving when they sin and seek to correct them with humility and we can expect the same treatment for the mistakes that we ourselves may make in the final chapter of his Epistle to the Galatians Paul had advised the assembly, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, in a sin, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. And this must be what he means here, where Paul advises the Ephesians that you must be forgiving with yourselves. They must take the time to admonish and correct one another in that same humble and brotherly fashion whenever they see someone doing wrong. Likewise, James, in chapter 5 of his single epistle, had said, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one converts him, let him know that he which converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. However, men can only be forgiving if the wrongdoers that they are compelled to correct are actually repentant. If a wrongdoer denies his sin or refuses to acknowledge his sin, and continues his bad behavior, refusing to keep the commandments of Christ, then he must be put out of the Christian assembly. Paul himself made this example, where speaking of a certain fornicator, he explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that such a man was to be put out of the Christian assembly. In correction, there is brotherly love. And that is what it means to speak the truth with love. We do not lie to our fellow man, telling him that God hates the sin, but loves the sinner anyway. Yahweh did not destroy sodomy, but he did destroy Sodom and all of the Sodomites who lived there. Speaking of that fornicator, Paul had told the assembly to deliver such a one unto Satan. For the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus so the fornicator would be put out of the fellowship of Christians and forced to make his way in the world outside the spirit may be saved as all Israel shall be saved but at the same time the fornicator in the body would be judged for his works he would suffer in the flesh for his sins Paul then said to them that I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters for then must ye needs go out of the world but now I have written to you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such a one, no, not even to eat. Don't even share your food with the sinner. In Psalm 82 we read, How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? How long? Likewise, in Proverbs chapter 18, it is not good to accept the persons of the wicked to overthrow the righteous in judgment. When a Christian community accepts sinners such as the two sodomites in Texas who are trying to change a little girl into a boy, then righteous people are destroyed because the greater community has failed to correct or to ostracize the sinners. In this case, the greater community has overthrown those who were endeavoring to be righteous, not to say that the two women who were fired were actually righteous because we don't even know them, but they were endeavoring to choose the right path. But the community instead defended the sodomites, Speaking the truth with love, we endeavor to correct our brethren for their sins. As it says in Proverbs chapter 13, he who spares the rod hates his son. Well, that's true of a brother as well. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Without speaking the word of truth in relation to the laws of Yahweh our God one cannot hope for the restoration of the saints which is the very purpose of the gospel of Christ. But speaking the word of God in truth Christians also expect to find contention with the world that's the Christian challenge as the Apostle Peter also said in chapter 4 of his first epistle beloved think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings suffering because you've done good that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Christians are therefore obligated to express disapproval of sins and separate themselves from sinners. Neither should Christians adopt the language of the sinners. A parent is someone who actually contributed to the birth of a child. Therefore, sodomites are not worthy of the term. A little girl who is told by sodomites to be a boy is not a so-called transgender. No, that's bullshit. That is also a made-up term which cannot really exist because the biological purpose of gender is the propagation of a species by sexual reproduction. The devils have not yet succeeded in doing that. So instead, they have attempted to redefine the term parent a man without a penis cannot fulfill the reproductive role of a woman so that man is not transgendered, rather he is nothing but a modified sodomite that's what a man without a penis is he's a modified sodomite and that little girl is not transgender she is being abused, and corrupted. Christians should never accept such things. The New American Standard Bible <coughs> Excuse me. The New American Standard Bible renders Leviticus one quite well, where it says, Now if a person sins, after he hears a public adjuration to testify, When he is a witness, whether he is seen or otherwise known, if he does not tell it, then he will bear his guilt. Therefore, Paul says in the opening verses of Ephesians chapter 5, Be therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor Christ sacrificed himself for his people but fornication and all uncleanness or coveted, covetousness let it not be once named among you as becometh saints Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no whoremonger, or unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. This is what Paul talks. This is what Paul calls love. This is what Paul calls walking in love. This is what Paul calls speaking the truth in love. Not accepting whoremongers, fornicators, unclean persons, covetous men, idolaters. Not accepting them is love. (coughs) None of these, Paul says, have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. And in others of his epistles he elaborated in diverse ways, likewise excluding men who are effeminate or men who have sexual intercourse with other men, arsenal coites men who have coitus with men and adulterers as well as those who commit other sins speaking the truth with love is the excluding of all those people from your Christian community that's love accepting such sinners and not protesting one becomes liable for the penalty as if actually having committed the sin that is the meaning of Paul's words in Romans chapter 1 where he said that knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death not only who do the same but who have pleasure in them that do them we cannot have pleasure in sinners which is the spirit of the law in Leviticus five one. if we do not protest sinners, we share in their guilt. John also speaks in this same manner in verses 9-11 of his second epistle, where he says that even so much as greeting those who do not bear the doctrines of Christ, one takes a share in their evil works. Speaking the truth with love, Christians should denounce all of those evil works and also denounce those who perpetrate them without repentance. Concerning this, Paul himself says later on in Ephesians chapter 5 to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead to even reprove them. When you tell a race mixer that fornication is evil, and God hates fornicators, or when you tell a sodomite that sexual deviancy is hateful and evil, and God hates sodomites, that is not hate, that is love. That is Christian love. We seek to correct our brethren, those of our race. And we pray that one day it sinks in. Until they repent, we ostracize them to the extent that we can in this presently wicked world. That—that That is speaking the truth with love. This is the walk which denominational Christians have long ago abandoned. Mostly because they have been under the control of the Jews. The enemies of God and Christ for so long a time now. For that reason, as Paul states here, that for this reason because of these sins, the judgment of God comes upon the ungodly. For that reason, the judgment of Yahweh our God on our once Christian society cannot be forestalled. It's going to get worse. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. I'll be here tomorrow night with Martin Luther. Good night.